You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Baba Kepasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. I'm delighted to be with you again today. And uh, our distinguished speakers will discuss how we can help to sustain financial stability and inclusion in the digital era. The International Monetary Fund research indicates that without proper supervision, risks to financial stability increase when access to credit is expanded. This research also indicates that investing in high quality supervision can pay big dividends as financial inclusion expands. That's where Toronto Centre comes in. Since our inception in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 15,000 supervisors from 190 countries and territories to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. We see financial inclusion and digital finance and their potential for poverty reduction and balancing the gender gap in finance as the key connective tissues of the sustainable development goals. Consider the digital surge accelerated by COVID-19. Today, conventional banks account for only 72% of the total market value of global banking and payment industry. This is down from 96% a decade ago. Fintech and non-bank payment firms make up the other 28%. So certainly there's a chip in away effect. While digitization has removed the distance barrier in remote areas, it has also exposed risks. The pandemic has heightened the urgency for supervisors, especially in developing countries, to meet the challenges of underdeveloped digital financial services and infrastructure at a time when there is a proliferation of unregulated multiple financial services providers. None might be a major risk on their own, but as they aggregate, they could pose systemic risks. Think of uh, an army of ants eating an elephant, not least given the disproportionate impact on the poor, particularly women who are financially excluded. This intensifies pressures on supervisors to monitor sound lending, work with multiple stakeholders, and to be on top of cybercrime and fraud. Join me in welcoming our two distinguished speakers who are leading their nation's supervisory efforts to tackle these challenges. Irene Espinosa Cantelano is a deputy governor of the Central Bank of Mexico. Bengali, good friend of Toronto Center, is assistant superintendent regulations of OSFI in Canada. Irene, Ben, welcome. We will have three rounds of questions and then I will take questions from the audience. Please use your, the Q&A tab to submit your questions and have mercy on your moderator, brief questions. If you have long speeches, I just won't have time to you. Before we start, I would like to thank Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, Jersey Overseas and Comic Relief, 
and the USA for generously supporting our mission. I would also like to thank Demet Kanekcha, uh, Ashley Thompson and Diana Bird for tirelessly working on our webinar series. And a shout out to Diana Bird who's leading us. Uh, she was uh, our partner, my partner in doing all these webinar series since the pandemic started. Diana, we wish you best and don't forget about us. Irene, the first question is posed to you. Central banks are developing or at least modeling issuing digital currency. How are you planning to move Mexico's payments to digital? How will this help unbanked populations? Thank you. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Thanks to Toronto Center for the invitation and I'm very glad to share the panel with Ben. So uh, I'll start with your, with your question. Of course, as you mentioned, I think before the pandemic, uh, digital finances, financial services were a, a very relevant priority, but after the pandemic, now it's a, a, a necessity. We need to advance on that and, and the pandemic has also not only evidenced the inequalities, but also um, ex, ex, po, the potentially also like increasing the inequalities because of the social distan distancing measures. So what are we thinking in the central bank to move to digital payments? We have a, we, we need to have a very long-term uh, vision and what we are planning is our vision is to have every Mexican, um, regardless of its uh, social economic um, stand, to be able to send and receive payments in a safe manner, in a transparent manner, trustworthy, but also at cost zero or at a very low cost. So in this sense, all of the payments run on payment system. And, and there, the central bank has a key role to play, not only as a regulator, but also as the developer and the operator of the, of the infrastructure. So our strategy is to strengthen the public infrastructure, taking advance, uh, advantage of, of the scale that it can handle also on the network externalities and also to have the incentives for innovation and, and also for competition. So what have we done until now in Banco de Mexico? Uh, in 2019, well, previously, let me go back first to 2004, uh, the central bank developed the, the main payment system, which is called SPAY. And this is a very efficient uh, payment system that is available 24 seven. And it's, it's a, a very strong infrastructure. After that, in 2019, we launched our request to pay platform, uh, which is based on QR codes and it, it runs on the, on the SPAY infrastructure. Today, this platform uh, needs for users to have a bank account. And now the bank is uh, developing a, a new version of this platform where users don't need to have a bank account. So we will have a temporary place to store the money and where users and users and, and receivers and, and also senders of the payments 
will be able to, to do the payments. So I think we are going in the right direction. We are aware that this is something that we need to develop quite quickly and are working uh, very hard on that uh, on, the, on the national institutional framework, but also on the internal uh, in, in front of the bank. Thank you very much, Irene. Uh, Just a quick uh, follow-up question. That doesn't mean that uh, there's no future for banks, right? Right, no, no. I think the idea is, uh, as I said, to bring the, the proper incentives for innovation and competition. And the view is really to have uh, take the advantages of the of the sizes of the technology, but also what the, at the on the side of the banks to 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 add from one from the other. So this is also the the view, and I think your follow up question is very relevant. So it, it makes it more clear the 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 long term view. And it's interesting. Times have changed so much. Now we're trying to defend banks, right? Imagine what a decade can do. So Ben, uh, the next question is uh, for you. Before I start, Ben, uh, you'd be pleased to know we have uh, you know close to uh, 200 or so people uh, who are tuned in in one way, way or another. And uh, our uh, viewers are all the way from Argentina to Zimbabwe. So all letters of alphabet and countries are included. So with that in mind, uh, my question to you is, we are witnessing the proliferation of activities or entities outside the regulatory perimeter or subject to unclear supervisory responsibilities. <clears throat> in fact, if you had a chance to look at the Global Mail this morning, there was an article referencing Governor Mark Carney, who was warning against the Uberization, Uberization of uh, money, right? So in our interconnected world, this could undoubtedly have an impact on traditionally well-regulated jurisdictions like Canada because the world is changing so fast. Ben, is this the sort of thing that keeps you up at night? And does OSFI's consultation paper on technology risk in the financial sector intend to start a conversation on these issues? Uh, thank you very much again for the invitation to be with you today and uh, looking forward to the discussion. Uh, so in terms of uh, the topic, um, not many things keep me awake. Uh, I sleep pretty well, but uh, certainly it's a topic that keeps me focused in the daytime. Uh, it's definitely a, an interesting one and one that OSFI has uh, prioritized. Uh, the increased uh, adoption of digital technologies by all segments of the economy has the potential, I think, to affect the institutions we regulate. For instance, as we've heard, increasing numbers of consumers are opting to use payment platforms that lie outside the regulated financial system. Uh, digital technologies are transforming the financial sector and giving rise to greater competition between regulated institutions and emerging and often unregulated financial technology providers or fintechs. There is a risk that these new providers may create strategic risks that can destabilize the established financial institutions that make the foundation of the financial services marketplace and thereby threaten the viability of their business models. OSFI's technology risk uh, discussion paper was released last September, sought feedback on a range of technology related risk areas that were focused on, including cybersecurity, the use of advanced analytics, 
and the technology third-party ecosystem. And in May this year, we released a summary of our comments received and our plans for releasing new guidance over the next year or so. Uh, some respondents commented that OSFI should treat fintech arrangements similar to any other third-party arrangement. Many of the inherent risks posed by these firms are consistent with those presented by other third-party providers. Uh, it was also noted that we should uh, wait until the recently announced uh, regulations in Canada on fintech networking are finalized to avoid potential overlap. And just for background, in 2018, uh, the Canadian Parliament uh, passed changes to the legislation governing federally regulated financial institutions that address the growing prevalence of fintech. Uh, once they come into force, these changes will give institutions opportunities to better compete in the area by giving them greater flexibility to engage in fintech activities and invest in and acquire fintech entities, each on an indefinite basis and without regulatory approval. These legislative changes will come into force once related regulations are published and also come into force. When it comes to OSFI's guidance on third-party risk management, which is a key focus of this area, we are planning to replace our existing guidance that focused on outsourcing with a broader approach to guidance. Many third-party arrangements that institutions have today do not fall under the traditional outsourcing definition, including data sharing arrangements with fintechs. Further, in the context of uh, potential open banking systems, we would expect all players, fintechs and other non-financial institutions in a new system to have sufficient operational and financial fitness and are working through those implications. Another aspect that OSFI is looking at is big tech and their continuous interest in entering the financial services industry. While fintech can bring lots of change, big tech presents a different dynamic altogether with the size and reach. It is a topic being discussed at the international level and OSFI is well placed to provide input to this work. For us, it is about how we can enhance our supervisory practices to keep up with the changing landscape. So if anything were to keep me up at night, I would find answering how best to supervise or regulate big tech on that list. And finally, I would note that FinTech is occurring organically within regulated institutions, not necessarily discrete as separate entities. This is changing fundamentally the nature of operational risks within the very organizations which used to supervising. And we are obviously needing to consider how best to oversee these changes as part of our ongoing improvements within supervision. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, and I think what I'm gathering from what you're saying is, uh, first of all, I'm glad that you, you sleep at night because we need your waking energy. There are entities that are regulated by supervisors, you mentioned banks and all of that, others, and FinTech is within them. So that's a certain degree of uh, control. There are entities that are regulated, but not necessarily by financial uh, authorities like telcos in many developing countries, but at least they have a, and the entity itself is regulated, not the activity. Then you have these big techs with their massive power and massive uh, uh, capitalization and social network. And we've seen how social networks can get distorted, right? So essentially what you are doing and what you guys are up to is pretty crucial as a cost of change. Anyway, thanks. Irene, the next question is for you. I wanna bring it back down to real people. Uh, access to finance and poverty reduction are top priorities for the Mexican government, especially since the pandemic. 
The Bank of Mexico has shown impressive leadership in financial inclusion. Good for you. Could you elaborate on your efforts to deepen financial inclusion and expand access to finance in the context of this conversation? Thank you. Yes, thank you, Baba. Uh, yes, Banco de Mexico has been very active on financial inclusion. Uh, and, and I would say in two fronts, as I already mentioned, in the national uh, institutional front, but also at the internal activities of the bank. So on the national front, as you know, uh, Mexico has been very keen on financial inclusion, and this has been a top priority for over 10 years or so. So um, we have recognized uh, that this needs uh, a lot of, it must be based on coordination among authorities. So that's why in 2010, the National Council for Financial Inclusion was, um, was installed with the participation of all the authorities, the financial authorities, and of course the central bank is there. And the, one of the products of the work of this council uh, was released in 2020 with a national financial inclusion policy. And this policy relies really on uh, how to explore innovative technologies, how to eliminate traditional and non-traditional barriers for financial inclusion, and uh, something that is very important, at least in, in our country, is to foster the user's trust on the financial services. So Banco de Mexico is working on a very long list of projects regarding all of these objectives, like, uh, for example, incentivizing digital payments with Cody, as I mentioned, we also developed a, a platform for consumers to compare prices and financial products so that it can be easily managed and help people in making dec financial decisions. We also um, engaged in, sur in surveys to know about the financial health of, of the users of financial products because this is also one of the, of the core objectives of the policy, not only to increase access and the usage of uh, financial services, but also to ensure that we have con uh, consumer protection. And now we were talking about also personal data and also to have uh, financial competences so that we can make sure that the, the access and the usage of these financial products are really uh, being welfare enhancing. So the, I think that the, the information and the survey is, is, is very important. We also have developed some uh, specific financial products or accounts like, uh, for example, accounts for underage, um, also for the benef beneficiaries of the social programs and also specific types of accounts for migrants and their families so that they can safely send remittances and, and have all of these um, services available at, at one touch. No? We, uh, another product that the bank developed is a simplified credit card statement we used to have like hundreds of types of credit card uh, statements uh, where people really got lost. 
So we are trying to, to, to bring it, as you mentioned, down to earth. So we are working on all of these, um, all of these facilities or tools um, internally and, and also helping other uh, financial authorities in the regulation. Now uh, in the bank, uh, this year, it just uh, happened in March of 2021. The, the bank uh, uh, also established an internal financial inclusion committee. And the committee is, is, um, is, is, is a, a, a board to help uh, uh, printing a financial inclusion approach to all of the substantial and, the, and, and all of the activities of the bank so that every time we uh, make a regulation or release a regulation before that, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean in, in terms of financial inclusion or in terms of developing a product or whatever we do, we need to have a, a good answer for that question before releasing all of that. Thank you. That's great. That's uh, it's fantastic that you have that uh, a holistic view on it. And as I mentioned earlier on, uh, there's a big relationship between financial inclusion and stability. And it looks like Bank of Mexico is really stepping up. Ben, turning to you, the pervasive use of technology to collect, store, and use data in financial services has been accompanied by ever more sophisticated and frequent cyber attacks against financial institutions. Why can't people just be good, right? I'm sure many government agencies, including OSFI, are preoccupied with cyber risk. How is OSFI dealing with this challenge in Canada's financial system and what tools are effective for cyber supervision? Thank you. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, cyber risk is a, a, a top risk for OSFI and uh, for our financial institutions, very much top of mind as well. Uh, information security and integrity is critical to preserving trust and confidence in the financial system. So cyber supervision needs to be, in our view, central to the work of regulators and supervisors and the financial institutions we oversee. The good news is that the public and the private interests is likely to be very aligned on this very important priority. Our work is to uh, uh, um, work collaboratively with a range um, of different approaches, uh, both uh, and stakeholders, both inside and outside of the traditional boundaries of the financial system. This recognizes that the risks are many and varied and critically change rapidly. It also recognizes that risk management skills may reside beyond financial industry. And there are lessons to be learned from many different places in this regard. In addition to our investments in setting clear regulatory guidance and risk management expectations, including a new cyber and tech risk guideline later this year, our supervisory efforts are focused on promoting sound practices and resiliency to operational cyber disruptions. OSFI has a cybersecurity self-assessment tool published in October of 2013 that we encourage all our institutions to use. The outcome of this tool helps both institutions and OSFI get a view of the institution's cyber risk posture. And uh, critically, we're in the process of updating the tool 
in the next couple of months. So stay tuned for those uh, latest updates. Additionally, OSFI has a technology and cyber incident notification advisory also published that requires institutions to report material incidents to us. We use the advisory to ensure that our institutions are managing their risks appropriately throughout the incident life cycle. And OSFI receives a variety of notifications. Those vary from ransomware attacks to third party breaches, but also include technology outages and system failures. We're also aiming to update the advisory with the aim to enhance the timely reporting aspect in line with the evolving threat landscape, which I mentioned is very rapid. Additionally, OSFI started sharing intelligence bulletins with our regulated institutions that include timely threat intel. These intelligence bulletins are made of techniques, tactics and procedures, TTPs, of attacks that we receive via our incident advisory. OSFI is also a member of the Canadian Financial Sector Resiliency Group, CFRG, a forum of critical financial sector participants, both private sector and public. The, CF, the CFRG's mandate is to support enhancements of the operational resiliency uh, of the financial sector by coordinating critical finance sector responses to systemic level operational incidents and coordinating critical finance sector-wide resiliency initiatives. As a member of the CFRG, OSFI actively participates in multiple initiatives, including uh, a recent cyber tabletop exercise facilitated by the group and a very important part of testing resiliency in general. The emphasis of our work is risk management and crisis response clearly recognizing that traditional prudential responses such as more capital and liquidity are not going to be as useful in responding to a cyber attack. So risk management, resiliency and crisis preparedness is our focus. Thank you. Thanks, uh, it's very reassuring that there's so many eyes on this. Uh, we love to hear more. As you said, we are staying tuned. The next question is for you. It's been mentioned that Mexico is uh, the fintech leader in Latin America. You get the Oscars for the continent with more than 700 fintechs in a variety of sectors. Why might that be? And how do you safeguard Mexico's financial stability against the proliferation of fintech players? Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, as you mentioned, um... Fintechs have been steadily growing in, Lat in Latin America area and specifically in Mexico, mostly since 2014. And therefore the need to develop a financial uh, technology institutions law that was released finally in 2018. And it's also one of the, of the pioneer uh, laws in the world regarding this fintech area. So why in Mexico? Uh, I think that there are three reasons. One is that there is a lack of uh, financial inclusion. So of course, developers saw a business opportunity to develop it in, in Mexico, and there was a gap to be filled. And technology, um, financial services through technology would be a very, a very good mean for that. 
the second reason is that in Mexico is a real extensive use of internet and of mobile technology. Uh, in 2017, um, around more than 80 million people were using internet, which is almost 80% of the, of the population. And also 86 million people were using uh, mobile phones and nine out of 10 would have a smartphone. So this would put the, 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 the um, uh, ingredients for, for the FinTech industry to have a very good development. And also the entrepreneurial um, ecosystem in Mexico uh, is quite developed in terms of uh, having a, a lot of financing from venture capital investors and innovation. And I think this, the, these are the reasons for the, the, the higher than, than uh, expected development of fintechs in Mexico. Now, of course, uh, the Mexican authorities, we are very uh, worried about how this uh, development, very rapid development and, and in terms of, of size and number uh, could hinder uh, financial stability. And I think we have uh, two big pillars for that. One is the regulatory framework, as I mentioned, this law that was released in 2018. And we also have a financial innovation group. And let me go a little bit more on, on the detail. Um, but behind, before going into the detail, I, I would say that this framework is based on the principles of uh, caution, um, and but at the same time promoting innovation, of uh, being very uh, keen on gathering information, on analyzing risks. So I would say that the the, the umbrella principle is is cautiousness. Now the, this law that was released in two thousand eighteen doesn't uh, regulate all of the fintech system, all of the fintech institution. It really regulates uh, two, two types. One is really crowdfunding and electronic payments. Uh, the other one is uh, operations with virtual assets. But the law has a third part that is very important, which is a regulatory sandbox. And, and this tool is very important to uh, develop and promote innovation in a secure environment. And I think that's, that's uh, one of the key issues. Now we have uh, uh, 14 entities that have an authorization for crowdfunding and payment um, and electronic payments. There are 32 more that are underway of authorization. And we have not authorized yet any with, for operations with virtual assets. Now, this other part of the fintech se sector that is not regulated under this law is regulated under other federal laws. So it's not that it's not regulated at all, but it really has a, a minimum of other laws that are um, supervising for money laundering and for uh, the, the proper constitution of this institution. Now, for the second pillar that I was talking, this uh, financial innovation group, 
this is part of the institutional arrangement where we have uh, a, a diverse group uh, coming from the financial authorities, the private sector, the academic sector. And it's really a place to discuss and analyze a consulting group uh, to see experiences, to exchange ideas, to uh, develop tools to reduce the impact of any type of, of new technology or new business model. So I think the, this is a philosophy of building together, of gathering information, of exchanging information, which uh, will take us or lead us to, to, to a safe place for promoting innovation at the same time that we are um, being cautious about the risks. Yeah, thank you. No, that's, uh, you, you summarized the prudence very well. And also <laughs> at the same time, how not to stifle innovation. Ben, my last structured question goes to you and we already have a, a few audience Q&A. So this would be a good time if people want to add more questions. So Ben, according to a uh, recent global survey, 82% uh, of companies increased their cloud usage because of the pandemic and a significant number uh, see cloud usage as a strategic priority. Through shared software, hardware, and vendors, incidents could spread more quickly leading to higher losses for financial institutions and stress in the financial system. In your view, how should supervisors prepare for this challenge in the short and long terms? Thank you. Uh, thanks for the question. And I mean, the business of supervision is to um, consider what could go wrong and uh, develop suitable mitigants. So, you know, clearly cloud has many um, significant benefits as you, as you implied but our focus is obviously on what could potentially go wrong. Uh, and as a supervisor, my quick response would be to consider the implications to operational resilience, the ability to maintain critical processes and outcomes uh, towards uh, consumers and other stakeholders. It's a key uh, objective that's gauging uh, outcomes. It's, it's gaining traction internationally. The Basel Committee published uh, papers on this very topic. And I think it, it's a useful companion to financial resilience uh, and uh, a way of framing supervisors, the ultimate objectives here, which is obviously to expect firms to evaluate their own operational resilience and to have suitable risk management and control, control structures around uh, that objective uh, so that we can uh, more effectively understand the changes to operating environment and how threats and mitigants uh, can involve in what is increasingly a rapidly changing technological environment. In terms of the specific question, OSFI's approach has always been principles-based and risk-focused. Um, we don't opine on a specific cloud provider or a specific uh, technology. Having said that, as financial institutions embark on their cloud journeys or increase their existing footprint in the cloud, our focus uh, is on how they manage the risk, including the potential for risk concentrations. As you mentioned in the question, there are benefits. Um, uh, obviously, with uh, institutions, particularly smaller institutions, 
getting access to potentially best-in-class uh, information security capabilities, among others. There are also risks, and especially uh, concentration risk in cloud providers. As part of our supervisory plans, we have been performing multiple reviews focused on cloud at our institutions. The reviews focus on areas related to cloud strategy and governance, cloud configuration and change management, shared responsibility models, cloud data protection, disaster recovery, exit strategy, to mention a few. Additionally, internally for our supervisors, our new technology risk division team is developing a cloud supervisory toolkit to arm and educate our supervisors on the topic and enable them to have risk-based discussions with our institutions on this evolving topic. But with all things operational, it is important to use simulations and tabletops to draw out insights and vulnerabilities. The key will be to understand the implications of disruptions, identify, identify vulnerabilities from cloud, and to prepare playbooks with clear accountabilities and actions based on lessons learned. In terms of supervisory capabilities, this is an area that requires investment and expansion over the medium to long term in terms of talent and our own technology infrastructure. It's also an area that is testing the boundaries of supervisory oversight, especially with respect to big tech, as we noted before. This may require additional thinking around legal mandates, access to information, and ultimately supervisory authority. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ben. Certainly a lot of work needs to be done on this. So uh, first, a big thank you to our speakers for uh, managing your time extremely well. I didn't have to cut anyone off. So that leaves us with uh, plenty of time for questions. I see a couple of questions from the Courageous Anonymous, but I think let's go with the people who have identified themselves by name. Our friend George Brady has a question. I think, Irene, it is for you. As Mexico is trying to build back better, um, do you see success in tackling the gender protection gap and increasing empowerment of the women through financial literacy and working with financial services providers? I mean, and George is highlighting a specific uh, Minerva group. You may know about it. So, you know, we're not here to ask you to um, spawn, uh, endorse anything, but I'm just wondering what has been your challenges and do you think you're making good progress in this area? Yes, um, of course, we are very um, concerned about inequalities, especially in access uh, to for financial services, especially for women in Mexico. This is a huge, um, there are huge barriers for access for women. Uh, nevertheless, I think there are uh, several very um, innovative uh, schemes of financing especially through uh, social bonds. Uh, recently, there were uh, three or four bonds that were released. Um, uh, and, and I think they were very, very successful since um, they had a huge demand, uh, around four times the, the amount of the, of the issuing. And also uh, in terms of the, um, of the rates, which were all of them um, uh, lower than the, the the average of the of the other social bonds that were issued before, so uh, I think we are going on the right side, 
uh, on the right direction. And um, as I mentioned internally with this uh, financial inclusion committee, we will be asking ourselves on each of the fronts of whatever our, uh, our uh, faculties are, how are we uh, enhancing the um, uh, financial inclusion for the mainly for the excluded groups with the policies that we are um, promoting. So I think we are on the right direction. The pandemic has uh, affected also more women and, and we will have to tackle that. And we are also on the, on the discussion with the government on how to implement recovery uh, public policies with a gender perspective. Thank you very much um, for that answer. And uh, turning to another one of our good friends, Calvin, uh, he's asking, uh, I guess, Ben, I'm gonna ask you to answer this. Either of you could take this, but uh, let's go to Ben first. The BIS has recently become very active in promoting the central bank digital currency, as we know. What do you think about this development? Uh, what changes do you think financial institutions, regulators and supervisors need to make if these digital currencies become a reality in Canada. I know that a lot of that is the remit of the Bank of Canada, but nonetheless, when it comes to supervision, uh, you will be at the uh, front and center. Any, any views on this? Yeah, thanks for the, the question. And I think it, my comments will sort of apply to the anonymous question immediately preceding Calvin's question. Uh, I draw your attention to the Basel Committee paper that was released earlier this month on uh, cryptocurrencies. And I think that does a very good job of framing the supervisory perspective uh, on um, these developments. I think uh, the development of digital currencies is a, an innovation that uh, is to be welcomed, is an innovation that is uh, part of the future, clearly. Um, but our focus as supervisors, again, is always to focus on, on the downside, the potential for loss, the potential for loss, not just in, um, obviously, um, financial loss, but also reputation, trust, and confidence. So the, the committee paper is really exploring um, possible treatments for capital, in particular, of different cryptocurrencies based on how stable or not we think those asset values are likely to be over time. And clearly that's an area of great interest, uh, how much loss could be realized uh, through the market uh, as a result of, of these new and evolving asset classes and how best to reserve or control for that. Uh, in addition, the paper does a good job of acknowledging there are uh, additional and different operational risks that come with uh, assuming and managing and risk overseeing uh, such uh, asset classes that we will also have to see, which may in fact also consider uh, capital requirements as well. So I, I think my short answer is it's to be, you know, safe innovations are to be welcome. And our approach as supervisors is to make sure that uh, we understand the potential for loss and do our best to ensure that the institutions we regulate appropriately uh, preserving and managing for those risks. Thanks. Thank you very much, Ben. And it's always a balance, right? I mean, if you go back and look at some of the presentations that were made to Canada's 
uh, Senate Banking Committee in, uh, in reviewing the Canada's financial system decades ago, uh, there was some semblance of a scale, right? The more you pay attention to financial stability, the less options might be available to consumers or reverse is also true. So which are you trying to preserve and protect and your mandate is to protect the financial stability. So, and the public needs to want to embrace these real innovations and then puts you in an awkward spot, right? So that's part of that. Well, so I'm, I, may, I may sort of push a little bit on that. I mean, it is true that we have a, a balance to consider on our mandate, um, which is to ensure that our firms are able to compete and take reasonable risks. I don't necessarily see them as mutually exclusive. I think innovation, if we don't have innovation, the system will fail because uh, developments then will not, not occur as they should. Uh, the question is, uh, what does uh, a reasonable risk look like and what does safe and sound prudential practice uh, look like around these currencies, which is why I think that the committee paper does a good job of getting that thinking out there. And uh, we'll make that uh, paper available. Thank you so much. Uh, back to you, Irene. It's a question from Neil. Uh, just talking about could Mexico, could you please share some insights in Banco Mexico's formulation of a cyber security uh, framework? Well, yes, um, cyber security incidents have been growing lately in terms of number and also diversity. So, um, this is one also of our top priorities. And uh, we are working on a cybersecurity uh, framework that covers, uh, first of all, the, the systems of the bank that the bank operates, the payment systems and, and all the other uh, systems that we operate, but also uh, the whole network in the financial system. And I think there is a, a, a very good, um, the bank has been doing a very good job in terms of setting uh, minimum standards um, for cybersecurity for all the participants in the financial sector. So uh, it's been uh, focused on how to mitigate the um, uh, uh, systemic risks but also how to mitigate the individual risks of the, of the financial institutions. And this is a work that has been um, undergoing for the last 10 years or so. And there is, this is also a front where there is a lot of uh, uh, cooperation among the different uh, financial authorities. Uh, we have also an incident um, a recovery group that uh, includes not only financial authorities, but also other type of authorities from the government and from the banking system and, and other intermediaries. So uh, we are aware that it's crucial to have um, information security technology as a top priority and setting minimum standards and advancing on this is, is very, uh, very important for the bank. Um, we internally, we have a joint uh, responsibility framework for cybersecurity. And uh, so we, we, um, we are advancing also well on this front. 
Great, thank you. And uh, Ben, do you have anything to add on cybersecurity? We talked a little bit about it and you are, seem to be plugged into some of the Basel discussions. Is there anything you want to add to complement or take a different view of what Irene talked about? I think I, the overview I gave earlier is probably a, um, sufficient. I, I think the references to operational resiliency, there's again, those papers on uh, operational risk management uh, practices, uh, principles, as well as uh, operational resilience specifically that the committee came out with, I think in May. Uh, those would be two good reference papers I would um, point colleagues to, uh, as well as our incident advisory on the, on the web we've published. And uh, as I say, our plan, I think this fall, is to target a new cyber and technology risk uh, guideline that sort of tries to bring together in one place uh, an overarching set of expectations, still principle-based and not uh, reinventing the wheel when it comes to tech risk um, frameworks, of which there are many, uh, tech risk management frameworks. Um, but I think uh, with that as background, I'd probably just stop there. Thank you. No, thank you. Those are good references. And as I mentioned, we'll try to make them available as well because uh, it's part of a big discussion. Uh, Irene, I want to ask you a, a question here that uh, stems from some of the work that we've done. There was a, we, we have held four roundtables uh, in the margins of the World Bank IMF. And I think Mexico has participated in some. These are small gatherings and they're um, like Chatham House rules. But one of the observations we had, we had central bankers, supervisors from developed countries and emerging market countries, right? So big mix. And early on when we were discussing these issues around digitalization and financial inclusion, et cetera, there was a very big uh, uh, demarcation between developed countries and, and emerging markets. So developed countries were more interested in protecting or dealing with issues around privacy and emerging market and developing countries were more sort of grateful for the opportunity of expanding access to financial services. And we see that uh, people are generally, maybe sometimes are ahead or behind the regulator in the sense that they don't really value their privacy as much as the regulators and others do in some cases, especially young people. How do you deal with that in Mexico as you're trying to expand access and yet there are some legitimate privacy issues how do you philosophically and practically deal with this question? Um, yes, we have uh, some kind of principles for our um, general policies. One of them is uh, to deal with um, uh, jurisdictional gaps. And I think what you're mentioning about the opinion coming from advanced economies regarding kind of um, emerging markets pushing much more for innovation without uh, looking so detailed uh, on, on the protection of, of data is um, there are different uh, levels of uh, supervisory capacities, I think. And it is important precisely those kinds of, of encounters to have a lot of communication so that uh, we all can cooperate uh, on that front. And, and yes, we are um, also uh, putting a lot of work on data governance as one of the main parts in terms of the 
development of, of uh, new entities, of fintechs, of innovation. This is one pillar that is very important uh, for us to, to keep in mind. Client protection um, is, is key. And this is not something very uh, visible and very easy to explain to developers and to users on the individual front. This is really a, a national state issue that we have to be uh, securing data protection. And um, yes, maybe, maybe there is this a huge optimism on pushing for more innovation, but as Ben mentioned, we have to keep in mind a balance uh, in terms of having uh, deeper financial uh, systems, more inclusive financial systems, but at the same time to have um, very uh, a secure uh, environment. And in a way, one of the big uh, uh, risks that might arise, especially in the fintech industry, is uh, uh, disorderly growth. I mean, the uh, um, if, if we have a very rapid scaling process in terms of the size of the fintech industry, in terms of the participation of big techs, this can really be disruptive for the financial stability and also for the financial system. We could be exposed to players that are not, don't have the, the the experience don't have the tools for uh, risk assessments or risk management policies that are properly uh, managed. And uh, so this is, um, of course, the governance in terms of, of risks, in terms of data protection, in terms of innovation. We need to keep in mind this balance uh, so that we don't uh, compromise the financial stability of the of the system. Um, anyway, with that, I, I would stop. That's great. So we've done really well with our time, and uh, I'm going to try to bring this session to a close. Before I do that, uh, Ben, do you have any final comments, words of advice, cautions for us? Uh, my, my only advice is uh, in this arena. Uh, is to co cooperate, uh, exchange, network, build your expertise base well outside of the financial system. There are lots of people with very relevant expertise and insights that are keen to work with regulators in the financial area. So uh, all we can do to kind of build our ecosystem and stay connected and, and use events like this to share expertise, I think is incredibly valuable. So just my, that would be my main piece of advice. That's great advice, Ben. And you know, it's uh, interesting where the cusp of a lot of changes. And on the one hand, we can praise or complain about the rapid pace of technology. But I just ask each of you if you have to sign a document with a wet signature, you realize how frustrating it is after having gone through all this. So we all share the joys and tribulations of all this. So, Irene, thank you so much for your time. Ben, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you devoting a bit of your time to us. I know how busy you are all and with this difficult global time, you have our appreciation. We will make this session available uh, through our um, uh, 
cohorts to go through our training programs and also make them available publicly. So you've really contributed to a very good sense of knowledge. So thank you. Namaste. Take care. Muchas gracias. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.